It's 1208, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. In Wisconsin, we have been at the forefront of a number of different legislative initiatives over the last eight years or so. Um, Right to Work, Act 10, the list goes on and on. That would not be the law in Wisconsin now were it not for not just the legislature, not just the governor, but the state Supreme Court ultimately deciding that the legislature and the governor were within their authority to pass various laws. The Supreme Court is huge. Keep in mind what happened, for example, after Act 10. You had a litigation that was started in Dane County Circuit Court. You had a number of very, very liberal Dane County judges who seemed were going out of their way to toss various components of Act 10. Remember that? It was only after matters got to the state Supreme Court that it was resolved once and for all. Right now, the composition of the state Supreme Court is five, what I would describe as judicial conservatives. That's not the same as being a political conservative. It is a judicial conservative. In other words, somebody who appreciates the role that the court system plays in the overall scope of, you know, what is a judge's or what is a justice's duty with regard to reviewing legislation. There are two liberals. One of the five members of the conservative bloc is retiring, Michael Gableman. He's been a frequent guest on this program. There will be an election next April to replace him. There are three candidates, a Madison lawyer, a Milwaukee County circuit judge, and a Sauk County judge named Michael Scranock, who is running. And we are joined now by Judge Scranock. Judge, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you uh, for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Am, am I, I always have trouble with your last name. Am I getting it correct? <laughs> you did get it correct. <laughs> okay. <Right> up, right <laughs> Got it. Now, Judge, interestingly enough, uh, the you, you have a very interesting path to to the law. For many of us who are attorneys, we, we go right from college to, to law school and start our career. You, um, you, you, you didn't do that. You didn't follow what would be the traditional path, did you? No, I, I did not. I, after uh, I got my bachelor's degree at University of Wisconsin-Madison, I pursued a, a master's in business administration with an emphasis on uh, economic development. And I then worked for nearly 12 years in local government uh, in, in the areas of, of uh, community development. I was actually a building inspector. Uh, and then I was finance director and city administrator. I worked for three small cities in Wisconsin. And it was after that experience that I then went to law school. So I have a very... Uh, I, I have I bring that background uh, to uh, my candidacy to the to the Supreme Court because I understand the role of local government and the mindset of uh, local government officials. And after getting out of law school, you ended up working in private practice with uh, a Milwaukee-based law firm, Michael Best. Correct? That is correct. I worked for I think about eight years with Michael Best in out of their Madison office, mm-hmm. and in during that experience, I then uh, you could say switched teams. Uh, but most of my work was done representing private interests, and so and mostly uh, the work that we the work that I did, uh, we tried to plug me in wherever our clients were intersecting with government, both local and state, and a little bit of federal. So I have that background as well of understanding the perspective of the regulated community uh, intersecting with government. And after the experience in private practice, you were appointed to the bench by Governor Walker. What 2015 was that when you were appointed? Governor Walker appointed me in 2015 uh, after Judge Taggart retired after a number of years. And it's been a real pleasure because I grew up in Baird. Baird was my hometown, and it's been a real privilege to serve my hometown of Baird and the surrounding area in Sauk County. 
as a circuit court judge since June of 2015. So tell me, and uh, let me ask you a two-part question, Judge. Number one, why do you want to be on the state Supreme Court, and how do you view yourself as being different from the other candidates that are also running for the same spot? The reason I'm running, the reason I'm a judge now is I want to use uh, the talents that I have in service to the the public, uh, the community at large. It would be a a tremendous privilege uh, to be able to do that on a statewide basis and to serve the entire state. When I was at Michael Best, I I worked on a lot of appellate cases. Uh, I was involved in 12 different cases in our state appellate system. Almost half of those ended up with our state Supreme Court. And during that time, I really understood uh, what a passion I have for researching the law uh, on, in complex cases and really trying to understand what is the right law, what does the law say about these unique fact patterns. So I, I believe I'm well suited for the, the work that uh, Supreme Court justices do. Uh, the, the reason that I decided to run it this time, and you touched on it in your opening, is I believe that it's critically important that whoever does succeed Justice Gableman has an appropriate view of the role of the court. And I believe strongly in the rule of law, and that is that when the court is doing its work, it must be bound by the Constitution and the statutes and not use the opportunity uh, of a case that comes before the Supreme Court to inject onto society uh, the court's own policy preferences. Put another way, it's not the court's role to outthink the legislature or to veto legislation because it thinks that the legislature made a bad policy choice. And as I looked at my two opponents, uh, they both announced that they wanted to run against Justice Gableman. And when I was looking at their uh, the statements they were making publicly, I wasn't satisfied that either one of them truly uh, adheres to the rule of law in the way that I believe that our Supreme Court justices should. Yeah, so when we talk about judicial conservatism, it's not the same as being politically conservative. It's the idea that that there is a role that the court, that a judge, that a justice has in the process, which isn't necessarily to set themselves up as a super legislator and decide, hey, I I don't like the outcome or I don't like this law. The question that the judge should have is, is the law constitutional? Is the law if it was enacted, is it within the framework of, you know, what the, the authority of the legislature and the executive branch would be? That's exactly right. And and I believe that it, it is fundamental to our system of government that we do have three co-equal branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. And the other two branches, the legislative and executive branches, are our two political branches. And those two branches will, and we expect to, uh, blow with the political winds. As uh, society's views change, we expect the legislature and, and the governor to react to that. Uh, I believe strongly that the judicial branch is the, is the branch that needs to provide stability in the law, and it is not right for the, for the court to be blowing back and forth with the political winds. It is not to be a political branch, and it is not to act as a political check on the other two branches of government. Uh, when it's asked uh, to look into the work that the other two branches did, the role of the court is really to be a legal check, as you described. Did they overstep their constitutional authority in making the decisions that they did? If the answer to the question is no, that the legislature and the governor, uh, the executive branch, did not overstep their constitutional authority, the court needs to be hands-off 
and not inject itself into those political questions. We're talking to Sauk County Judge uh, Michael Scranock, who is the judicial conservative candidate for the state Supreme Court in the election. Primary election is going to be in February. The general election is going to be in April. Judge, let me ask you this. One of the things that has, has drawn perhaps some unwanted attention to the state Supreme Court over the last several years has been what seems to be an inability of some members of the court to get along with each other. There's been a lot of, a lot of publicized incidents. Um, if, if you're elected to the Supreme Court, do you think that you are going to be able to contribute to the collegiality, um, to essentially to get along with your fellow justices? I do believe that I can, that I will be a positive influence in that regard. Uh, when I, you know, I would go back to the work that I did as a city administrator. Uh, my job, my task at that time was to research issues that were coming before the city council or uh, that were already there and to uh, provide all of the information I could to assist the city council in making the decision it needed to make. I was involved in regional efforts uh, to set up the Schwamigan Bay. We were up in uh, way northern Wisconsin, up by Lake Superior. I worked on uh, collaborative efforts to, to set up the region to succeed in the uh, 21st century economy. Uh, I, have a, I have a collaborative leadership style. And so it's, it's been my practice uh, throughout my career, uh, including now as a judge serving with our drug court staff team, uh, to take issues that uh, can be uh, passionate and can, be, um, can really cause, uh, could be divisive, and work collaboratively with the team to come to a good outcome. It's not my style to be bombastic or uh, to, uh, to, to try to assert my authority in a way that uh, tries to stifle discussion. I, I see absolutely no reason uh, why I would have any difficulty working with any of the uh, well, any of the seven members currently on the court or the six that uh, would be there after Justice Gableman uh, steps down. There is a, a liberal advocacy group in, in Wisconsin that has decided that they want to play in this race, and they are targeting you as the judicial conservative candidate. There was a story that you know um, th- they released, they, they fed to the media, and the media picked it up involving when you were apparently cited back in 1989 or so, when you were an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, you participated in a series of protests at one of the local abortion clinics. And we're going back to 1989 and apparently were cited for trespassing and um, ended up, I think, doing some community service. Um, let, let me ask you a little bit about it. What what happened, and do you think that this is some sort of disqualifying issue 30, almost 30 years later as you run for the state Supreme Court? Well, I, it's certainly not a disqualifying uh, situation. What happened was I was I was an undergraduate in college and felt, uh, felt strongly about an issue and worked. Uh, I was involved with a group that uh, collectively decided uh, that the group wanted to exercise its First Amendment rights and to do so in a way that we understood likely uh, would result in, in arrests for trespass, and, which is exactly what happened. Um, that was 30 years ago, nearly uh, 30 years ago. And what I can say is, is this, that uh, a couple of things. There is um, no reason why uh, a judge's personal feelings about an issue uh, should enter into its uh, the, the judge's decision making, and I'm confronted with that uh, on a on a weekly, if not daily, basis. Right now in the circuit court, uh, there are all sorts of really horrendous uh, cases that I deal with that really tug at uh, at your emotions, uh, including uh, you know rape, uh, 
child pornography cases, incest, domestic abuse. I've had a murder case. Uh, you know, and you've, you're, you're, you've, you've got the victims there, and you're, you're, you understand the impact of these crimes on, on their lives. And at the end of the day, the judge needs to be able to set aside um, the judge's own feelings about an issue and decide the case based on the facts and the law, and that's what I do every day. Well, let me just start, because that ties back into what we were talking about, about the judicial conservatism. So your, your position is just because you or any judge or justice might have a, a strong issue, feeling about a particular social issue, in this case, you know, the, the pro-life movement, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to follow the law as it exists when presented with a, a case in, involving the pro-life movement, for example. It is critical that a judge sets those things aside where justice. And we saw that uh, both in, at the state level and nationally, federally, with the issue of flag burning, where you had justices, uh, again, state and federal, that said, you know, I abhor the practice of uh, flag burning, but I acknowledge that the First Amendment allows someone to speak in that way. And as a matter of constitutional law, they can do it. And, and again, so that's... That's something that uh, judges and justices are confronted with on a regular basis. And it, it is absolutely critical that uh, an individual justice is able to put aside his or her political uh, beliefs or feelings about an issue and decide the case purely on the law as it's presented. And uh, I, I, I know that I can do it. I've, I've been doing it. And um, if I couldn't, I would need to step down today from my uh, seat on the circuit court bench. Uh, Sauk County Judge Michael Scrinock, thanks so much for joining us this today. And I, I have a feeling that we're going to be chatting quite a bit over the course of the next couple months. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I thank appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, and again, I, I want to give him an opportunity to come on because I, I thought... I thought this story, and I'm not saying it's not a story, but, I mean, the, the long knives are out. He is the conservative candidate for the state Supreme Court. The liberal long knives are out for him. They are trying to do anything they can to uh, essentially sneak away one of the seats on the court, um, eroding the conservative majority, because if you erode the conservative majority, um, ultimately, then that's the idea. Let's use the legislature. Let's use let's use the judicial branch. Let's use judges who don't necessarily want to follow the law, but want to decide what they think the law should be and act as a super legislator. That's not what he is. And so you've got a lot of the liberal um, activists are out to get him, and you've got some of those stories. We talked about that case as well. I mean, candidly, I mean, look, 30 years ago, he gets arrested out. He gets cited outside a demonstration at an abortion clinic. Lots of people were doing Doing that it never resulted in a, a criminal activity it's not a conviction it was a citation um, and I, I think I actually liked what he said he said look I, I understand we did this we knew that there was going to be some consequences um, but I wanted you to have an opportunity to hear that from the judge himself 1223 that was big story number one this is Jeff Wagner. it's 1226 Jeff Wagner 620 WTMJ why might Packers tight end Martellus Bennett consider retirement a powerful one-on-one -on -one conversation between Bennett our very own Jay Sorgi might reveal the answer. I haven't heard it yet. Hope Jay also asked him, why can't you catch the ball? Um, check it out at the Packers section of WTMJ.com. Also, while you're at WTMJ.com, check out all the different podcasts. I know lots of people do. You can download and listen to any 
of our various programs, including this one. All right. It's no secret. Matter of fact, Governor Walker has been talking about this on my program and other places um, quite a bit. But he is now in a position where he is formally announcing that he is running for governor. We're going to be joined by the governor early next week. I think Tuesday is when we're going to have an opportunity to talk to him. But um, he is officially announcing his reelection campaign. Um, it's at uh, Whitehall Manufacturing in Waukesha. Um, the event begins at 2.30. Um, and then, of course, the governor is going to be traveling around the state, making the rounds and talking about what it is that he hopes to accomplish in his third term. There are 10, 11, 12 Democrats lining up for the opportunity to beat him. It's, it's one of these things where you, you have... You have guys that have lost four or five statewide elections that they're they're running, guys that are in their 70s who decide that, okay, maybe this is my last chance. There's some younger backbenchers from the state legislature who are running. I don't think any of them has a realistic chance to beat Walker. What I assume is going on is whoever runs, if they do a credible job in losing, they're hoping to position themselves for perhaps four years down the road. That That's where I think it's going as, as people try to establish this. But in any event, Governor Walker will be formally announcing his re-election campaign starting on Sunday afternoon, and uh, I think he's going to be touting a lot of the things that have been accomplished over the last eight years. Hey, we're going to be talking about a couple other big things. The Republicans unveiled their tax reform bill. I'll I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version of it. I think they've got it right, and I'll explain why in just a couple minutes. It's 1228. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1235, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right. House Republicans are unveiling their tax reform package as we speak. Um, The details are coming out. It is something that has been the subject of a lot of discussion. The federal tax code is, in fact, a mess. There's just no question about it. And the idea is to try to make it simpler to try to make it fairer, to try to make it something that, you know, the average American might not have to go out and hire hire an accountant to try to figure out how to make things work. Now, I have had some concerns that I have expressed over the course of the last several weeks about this. One of the frustrations to me has been the idea that because they want it to be revenue neutral, in other words, they, 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 they want to, in again, lowering taxes for some people, they, they don't want to, they have to generate the money somewhere to pay for that, so that means that there's going to be other people that might pay more. Now, I, I have argued that with a Republican legislature, legislature and a Republican president, maybe what we should be doing is trying to lower taxes and also lower spending to pay for it. But that's not going to happen. So there are winners and losers in the tax reform bill. But here's what they're doing. First of all, they are increasing the standard deduction that Americans can take. So you will get a larger credit as a general rule. In addition to that, they are reducing the number of brackets from seven to four. So there will be more people covered in the different brackets of import. They have decided not to mess around with your ability to contribute present dollars to a 401k plan and be able to take a a tax deduction on that, um, that reduce your taxes, and then it's tax deferred. So in other words, um, if you decide you want to take responsibility because you're concerned about Social Security or whatever for saving for your retirement future, 
the way the law works now is you can take up to $18,500, and most people don't fully fund their 401k plans. You can also take another $6,000 in what's called a catch-up contribution if you're over 50. But what you can do is you can put that money into a retirement account, and it will be tax-deferred. So... For example, let's say you contribute $10,000. Let's say you make $60,000 and you decide you want to contribute $10,000 to your 401k plan. That $10,000 comes off the top. So for tax purposes, it, it's not like you're making 60 grand. It's make, like you're making 50 grand. Now, the, the IRS gets its money eventually because when you take that money out of the 401k plan, you're going to have to pay taxes on it. But I believe this is a huge incentive for the average person to try to save. And I think it would have been horrible horrible, horrible to try to do away with the ability of people to save through their 401k plans. 401k plans are not touched under this. One of the other questions has been, what do you do with people who take certain deductions? Like, say, for example, you live in a high property tax state like Wisconsin, where we have lots of stuff on the property tax. Well, under current tax law, you are able to deduct the amount of property taxes that you pay. You are also able to deduct the amount of state income taxes you pay. And that allows a lot of people to itemize. Um, One of the things they were talking about is doing away with the ability to, again, either deduct property tax or deduct state income taxes that you pay. Um, This legislation preserves to an extent the ability um, to do that. You are now, you will be able to continue to itemize um, your property taxes and your state income taxes up to $10,000. So they do put a $10,000 cap on this. But for a lot of people, you know, you're not paying you're not paying more than $10,000 in property taxes. So you're still going to be able to deduct. And if you're you know, living in an expensive home and you're living in an expensive area and your property taxes are over $10,000, well, you'll only be able to deduct that portion up to $10,000. Now, that's a, you know, you, you are, again, some of those people that have the high property taxes, um, they are going to be losers in this to an extent. But But at the same time, for lots of middle-class people, you'll still be able to put that amount of money in. In addition, there was always a question about what do you do with mortgage interest? What about the mortgage interest that people pay, which, again, is a deduct, is something that is deductible and contributes to your ability to itemize? This has been a political hot potato because, again, you have special interest groups like the housing industry and things like that, um, one of the big selling points, hey, own a house as opposed to renting, is if you you know buy your house, you're able to deduct what you pay in your mortgage. Well, all right, what they've decided to do is, first of all, mortgage interest is going to continue to be deductible for everybody who has a, a mortgage. Moving forward, mortgage interest is going to be deductible on loans up to $500,000. So once again, for the people that are borrowing more than half a million dollars for the big homes and things like that, yeah, they're going to 
they're going to lose some of their ability to deduct. So they might be losers to an extent, but nevertheless, for most people, most people don't have mortgages that are over five hundred thousand dollars. And again, these are going to be new mortgages. So if you know if you're set right now, whatever your mortgage is, it's going to continue to be deductible. But yes, if you go out and you buy a house and you it's an enormous house and it's a lot of money, you it's not quite as attractive because you will to an extent lose some of your ability to deduct, but only some of your ability. It's still going to be deductible, I believe, up up to that $500,000 figure. So, yes, it's a little bit attractive, but just a little bit attractive, less attractive. One of the things that they also do is it eliminates the alternative minimum tax. Now, Gru, who's producing the program today, it, it's. I always say that you don't. You should never fall in love with anything that can't love you back. So, like, it, it, you know, don't fall in love with an inanimate object. And and the flip side is you shouldn't hate something that can't hate you back. So I'm about to violate my own rule because I hate the alternative minimum tax. The alternative minimum tax was something that was passed in 1969, and it was targeted at about 150 really, really, really rich taxpayers who use tax loopholes to avoid having to pay any tax at all. So the alternative minimum tax creates this whole separate tax system, essentially a way of calculating taxes for, at the time, what was the really super wealthy in America, 155 people, to make sure that they you couldn't get away with paying no taxes. Well, what's happened is the AMT, the alternative minimum tax, over the years – has morphed into something that catches more and more upper-middle-class taxpayers. Um, You know, the husband and wife, who maybe each make $100,000 a year. Now, again, we're not talking about the super-wealthy. We're talking about people that are doing okay, but not the the super-wealthy. To give you an idea, like I say, when the alternative minimum tax was passed in 1969, it was geared at at, um, 155 taxpayers. Now, and I, I did the math before I came here, now about 5% of the people who actually pay taxes and file returns, they they end up getting caught by the alternative minimum tax. And so this would do away with the AMT. And like I say, I think the AMT is evil. So, I mean, that's a couple of the highlights of this. I think they've gotten it right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, those are a couple of the highlights of the idea of tax reform, increasing standard deductions for a lot of people, simplifying the tax brackets, preserving your ability to deduct 401k uh, contributions, certain limits on, again, your ability to deduct mortgage interest and property taxes, but only for those who pay the most. And did I mention elimination of the dreaded alternative minimum tax? I think this is a plan, while not... It's no look. It's, it's not perfect, and there are still going to be some winners and losers. I think it strikes a pretty darn good balance, and at least my initial reaction is that this is this is something that conservative Republicans, moderate Republicans, and taxpayers in general should be able to get behind. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's discuss. It's twelve forty four. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1247, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Like I say, the devil is in the details, and there are going to be 
some people who, who end up paying more a, as a result of this. I mean, for example, people who itemize right now and who have the huge, huge if, if you're planning to buy a home and, and finance it and, and borrow seven hundred or $800,000, you're going to lose some deductibility. That, that's just going to be the reality of this. If you live in a high-tax state, you're going to lose your ability to take certain deductions. So my guess is when you sit down and, and break it out, you know, you're going to see that you're, you're paying a, a little bit more. Um, without Again, your individual situation is going to, to vary. But I think for the vast majority of middle class people, by increasing the standard deduction, what you're going to find is that your, your tax burden is going to decrease. And I think that's what the numbers show. Will there be winners and losers? No question about it. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Paul in Lake Geneva. Paul, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello there, and I love your show. Thank you. Um, Well, um, I've been uh, a citizen here now for probably 10 years, and uh, it's a, to me, it is so frustrating, you know, every year to have to go through all this stuff and for pretty much a common person like myself mm-hmm. to have to hire someone to do my taxes. Uh, it, right. I think it's ridiculous. And they have all the documentation. And why can't we just fill it out? If it could be a postcard, that would be fabulous. Yeah, it- uh, no, it, it's interesting, Paul. Thanks for you. You make a very and first of all, I mean, thanks for coming to this country and thanks for going to the trouble to become a citizen. No, you're 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 right. Um, I up and uh, I used to do my own taxes up until last year when finally it just got it just got too complicated and it was too aggravating. And so, I mean, now I have an accountant who actually was has been worth it because, like last year, she found a couple things that saved me some money or solved me some problems. And and so I'm going to continue to use it, but. But but yeah, I mean, I I would sit there and I up and I, I had relatively simple taxes. I mean, there there was you know W two income, there was uh, like uh, W one in there, I had W four income, I had K you know one income because my late wife you know had her own business. That's how it was treated, and so you know, but it was still relatively relatively simple. And still, you're spending hours and hours trying to wrestle with TurboTax. It shouldn't be that tough. By, by simplifying the tax brackets, by reducing the tax brackets, and by increasing the standard deduction, I, I think you're going to make it easier for a lot of people. Now, like I say, there are some people, and, and it might affect you. I mean, you know, it, it, might, it might impact you. If you, you know, pay more than $10,000 in property tax and state income tax deduction, you're going to lose your ability to itemize above that $10,000. Now, you're going to get it on the backside because the standard deduction is going to increase. Um, it's also, if you if you limit the ability of some people to itemize, it might affect charitable donations to the extent that that's what drives some people, that the tax deduction to make donations. I mean, I don't know. There are going to be winners and losers in this, no question about it. And I don't know where I'm going to fall until actually, you know, all the numbers get set in. But I think this strikes me as being reasonable. Let's talk to Brian in Grafton. Brian, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hey, good afternoon, Ashley. Hi, Brian. And, and, you know, I've always thought for years that, you know, just bear with me here, they should just completely abolish income tax and all these tax breaks and loopholes and everything. Just get rid of income tax 
and do a federal sales tax. Like a value-added tax, something like that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, they could do 10, 12, 13% or whatever, um, because then rich, poor, middle-income, people that work for cash, drug dealers, criminals, illegals, they all got to buy something, so they're going to pay tax. <laughs> you no, know what I'm no. Saying? Well, no, and, there, and I mean, you could even have certain certain levels of sales tax on luxury items if you want. Uh, you know, if somebody's buying that forty foot yacht, you can instead of ten percent tax, do it fifteen percent tax or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, uh, right. Well, no. You see, and, and I, I mean, no, thanks for going. And I do. And see, in in, in many European countries, um, you know, you, that's how they do it. You have a value added tax, which is that you you don't necessarily pay an income tax but what you do is you pay when you buy stuff now there's some people who think that that's regressive because it since it's the same level it has a disproportionate impact on like the poor people i don't know you know and again i i i don't know and i mean i'm open to a larger discussion of you know how we generate the money we need to run the government and i i do appreciate that we need to run money to run the government i i was very very skeptical when I heard some of these ideas that were being thrown around, because I'm all in favor of simplification, and I like the idea of increasing the standard deduction, I think for a lot of middle class and lower middle class people who pay taxes. Now, keep in mind, there's about 45% of Americans who, even though if they file, they end up between, you get deductions and credits, they end up not, not paying federal tax at all. So, and I've always, quite frankly, had a little bit of an issue with that. I think everybody should, you know, pay at least something so everybody has skin in the game. But I think for the vast majority of middle class taxpayers, however you want to define middle class, this is going to reduce their their tax. This is going to reduce their tax burden. I also think for upper middle class taxpayers who aren't the the super wealthy. But the ones I, when, when I saw that they're doing away with the alternative minimum tax, the AMT, that that was kind of a happy dance because, like I say, there's a lot of people who who aren't aren't wealthy, aren't super wealthy, aren't rich, but you know have decent jobs and are making a bunch of income, um, who get snared in that alternative minimum tax and end up you know having to pay thousands of dollars more than they otherwise would have to pay by doing away with the alternative minimum tax i think a lot of those people are going to be able to benefit for this you know as as well let's talk to jeff in fond du Lac. jeff you're on 620 wtmj hey jeff hi jeff as a, as a conservative i'd like to know how we're paying for this and is it adding to our deficit they say it's deficit neutral now that's what they say <laughs> you know but uh you know, and again, that I see. I, I, Jeff. I mean, I agree with you. I would like to see. I would like to see this done through spending cuts, as opposed to some people are going to pay more. There's just no question about it. But the more the people that pay more, I think, are going to be the wealthier type of people. Um, so that I mean, thanks. I mean, that's 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 kind of how I do the math. But again, this is one of those things where you're going to have to sit down and figure it out. If you don't itemize. I think you're going to come off better because your standard deduction is going to increase. So I think for almost everybody who doesn't itemize, you're automatically going to have more money in your pocket. It gets a little dicier if you do itemize because then you've got to kind of figure out, you know, where you fall on all these things. And, and you, that's where you're just going to have to sit down and end up doing the math. 
but simplifying, reducing the number of brackets, and at the same time keeping the 401k deductions, doing away with the alternative minimum tax, I am willing to take the, if I can get those, I'm willing to cap the property tax and the state income tax deduction. Yes, that will probably hurt to an extent some of the upper middle class taxpayers or wealthier taxpayers who don't get hit by the alternative minimum tax. But all in all, I think it's pretty decent. Um, it's 1255. This is Jeff Wagner. We will undoubtedly discuss this more over the next couple of days. Big story number three is coming up. Why in the world do we still have this diversity visa lottery program? Stick around. It's 109, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, big story number three. Let me just start off. I won't bury the lead. President Trump is exactly right. Oh, oh, how can you say that? Don't you understand? He's no, no, look, this is how I handle issues with President Trump. I I will criticize him when I think it's appropriate. Then I get the emails, Gru, who's producing the show. You will hear from it, too. Tell him to go work for MSNBC. He's not a conservative. So, And then when I support President Trump, it's like, oh, how can you support him? I No, when he's right, he's right. He is right that this visa lottery program is something that, if it ever had any validity when it was first passed in the 1990s, does not belong in this country in 2017. Now, most most routes to permanent legal residency um, require you to, if you're going to come into the country and get a a green card, um, you have to have a a close relative living in the United States. You have to have some sort of special skill, all right? Um, There is this lottery system, and it's a small subset of the overall immigration system, except, except that they estimate that there's about a million people um, have been awarded green cards through this program over the last you know 25 years or so. So it's a, it's a small subset, but nevertheless, it's still a, a lot of, of people. And again, you you don't need to it, you don't need to I mean have a relative living in the United States. You don't need to do a special skill. All you need to do is win that this this really the legal lottery and and it is like hitting a lottery um in some years this program has attracted nearly 15 million applications even though only 50,000 visas are ultimately granted it's been a program that is riddled with fraud um they've they, they found that in some cases you've had people, you're only supposed to be able to apply once. They've had people that have applied two, three, four thousand times. You know, now that's not, that's not everyone. Um, any given country is limited to only seven percent of the visas. But the way this thing works is, is simply that that's exactly it. it it's, it is a, a lottery. You have people who would not otherwise qualify for green cards who apply for this. And if you are a lottery winner, um, you, together with your spouse and together with any minor children that you want to take with you, 
get a visa which entitles you to move to the United States as a legal permanent resident. Um, you then can apply for citizenship after five years. I mean, it literally is the legal lottery with regard to this. Now, the guy that was responsible for the terrorist actions in New York two days ago was one of the winners of this legal lottery. He otherwise, he did not have any sort of special skills that would have qualified him to come over. He did not have any relatives living in the United States. He simply won the lottery. He just kind of won the lottery. What President Trump is saying is, we need to end this. You know, there's just no reason that we, we just have this, this happenstance that if you're lucky enough, if you don't otherwise qualify to be to, for, to come into this country and get a green card, simply because your number came up in some draft or in some that you hit the Powerball, that doesn't mean that you should be able to come over here. And so what President Trump has been talking about is championing what he calls merit-based immigration attended, intended to attract, uh, again, high-skilled Workers. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, the program is a little more complicated than I just explained, but not that much. I mean, it really is. You, you just throw your name into a hat. You get randomly selected, and if your name comes up, you get to come to the United States. Now, there is some security vetting and such, but at the same time, you're, you're coming, in this case, this guy who was responsible for the terrorist actions, um, he came from his Uzbekistan. Who, who knows how much vetting he got? He probably wouldn't have been able to immigrate, though, in the first place, were it not for him winning this lottery, because he didn't have people here to live with. He didn't have anybody to sponsor him. And he had no special skills. So let's just tee this up. Why in the name of whatever do we have an immigration system that allows up to 50,000 people without any unique skills, without anybody here to support them, just come into this country? 414-799-1620. And please understand, this isn't being anti-immigrant, at least not in my p- opinion. I mean, I'm not saying that you, okay, do, do away with, okay, the 50,000 people that are coming in through this lottery. Okay, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't still have 50,000 people. But, but doesn't it make a lot more sense to, if we're going to admit people, to either bring people in through, like, the regular system or identify people who have special skills that are in demand? It's just crazy in 2017 to be allowing immigration through a lottery. 414-799-1620. We discuss. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 115. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 117, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, coming up in about 12 minutes. Some students at UW-Madison don't feel like they belong. Should we be concerned? Stick around. Right now, we're talking about ending this diversity visa program. I I admit, I've always kind of known about this, and the guy who was responsible for the, the terrorist activity... Um, in New York the other day came in over the under this program. He's somebody who otherwise would not have qualified to come into this country and get a green card, but he did because he won a lottery. And he came over, and depending on who you listen to, he was either a radical when he came over or he quickly became radicalized. And now you've got eight people who are, are dead and several others who are injured. But beyond that, and I'm not suggesting that of the 50,000 people that come in every year, every one of them is 
going to be a terrorist. It just makes no sense to me that we are just allowing people to come in to this country and get green cards simply because their number came up in a lottery. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Paul in Lake Geneva. Paul, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, I actually get to listen to your show all day today, and I'm probably bugging you now. And if if that's the case, just... No, what what do you think, Paul? (laughs) What do you think? Well, well, I think, um, you know, the main reason the Brits, uh, where I'm from, wanted to separate from the European Union was because they had to take all these people from wherever that were, you know, some were legitimate refugees and yep. others probably were not. And that's why they have, you know, what, what we've seen over there in, that, in, in the past couple of years has probably been worse than here. Yep. And, and at some point, that is, you know, that yep. is the main reason they did this. And I don't know if a lot of people know that, but... Uh, at some point, you have to protect your country. Well, well right. I mean, thanks, and, to, right, Paul. Th- thanks to call. I'm, I don't, but you're and you're right. But it's not. Uh, again, to me, it's not even necessarily a question of protecting the country. Oh, I, I just think, you know, the, the idea that we're not allow we're going to allow people into this country who otherwise wouldn't qualify to come into this country and become permanent residents simply because their number came up, you know, they hit the lottery, is is just insane. It just absolutely is insane. Now, you, who, so who supports this? Well, the, the big advocates, candidly, right now are the Congressional Black Caucus because about half of the people who come in um, now every year recently about half of the people who come in are, are from Africa. So this is this is seen as a way to get people from Africa who otherwise you know don't have contacts here and don't have you know special skills. It, it's a way to allow them to immigrate to the United States that they otherwise wouldn't have. So it's the Congressional Black Caucus. This is big. It's big behind this. But having still having said all that, I mean, really, I mean, really, is this where we're going? Is this what our immigration system is all about? Um, Tony in New Berlin. Tony, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Good morning. I think it's just absolutely ridiculous the way it is nowadays. I mean, basically, people you know can come in for any reason. We need to be a little more selective because you know we are the greatest country in the world, and I think we need to have uh, a better way of, of venting yeah. people and getting the best and the brightest instead of the worst. Well, well, right. Or or people that you know. I mean, thanks to the call. I mean, see, one of one of the reasons that you have, for example, for the permanent residency that's set up now, is you want people who are going to come into this country with an idea that they're going to be able to make it in this country. So, so maybe it's that you've got a family member. All right, so you've got a. All right, you know, you're you're in wherever, and you know, you want to come into this country. Um, all right, you, you've got a brother. Um, you've got somebody here, you've got cousins, whatever, you've got somebody you can live with, you've got some sort of little support structure, or alternatively, you know, you have some sort of special skill that you've got an employer who's going to want to see you. Okay, all that stuff works. I mean, I, I understand that. You've got a chance to succeed. So here... It's just no, but for these 50,000 people a year, over a million since the program started, you know, we're going to bring you into this country. You, you, 
in many cases don't know the language, uh, you don't have any sort of special skills, you don't have anybody here, well, all right, that's just on all sorts of levels, it is a recipe for failure. And to me, this isn't being the ugly American. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't uh, saying, okay, we don't want to, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to exclude people from coming into the country. It's just a way of saying, hey, you know, moving forward, we need something that's going to make more sense. It's 123. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 125, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Let's see, on our text line, here's Eileen. As a person who works daily with our immigration system professionally... I am completely on board with a merit-based system. I would add that it should be a system to cover a gamut of employment classifications, skilled and unskilled, as well as specialized and professional occupations, including entrepreneurs. That way we have a more meaningful foreign national stream of employment based on the employment that is in demand. Um, Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I have no problem with that at all. All right, Gru, who's producing the program, I told you this beforehand. After every show, I, I get feedback, and I, I go out, and I'm out and about in the community and stuff, and I get feedback. Yesterday, all the different topics we talked about, all the preparation work, all that stuff, the thing that everybody wanted to talk about was this discussion I had with Belinda Babinick and you um, about the, the woman from Sockville who decided it was a good idea because the waiting pool didn't fit in her car to strap her nine-year-old son on top of the waiting pool and then drive down the street. Yeah, okay, and so people were saying, is that true? Yeah, it, it, it was hysterical. We were talking about it. I said, no, it's, I mean, it's, no, this is, you know, I mean, and, and people like called it. The woman's line was, well, my father used to do this to me all the time. What's the big deal? Um, and, and so, which, you know, you go back to the old line, you, you can't fix stupid. Okay, here's my story like that today. All right, and, and this, let me say, I, I need to do this up front. This is a PG-13 warning, so um, if you've got those little pictures with big ears, um, this is a semi-adult story, so I'm going to give you about five or six seconds to kind of like turn down the radio. Be sure to come back in a couple minutes, but this is a PG-13 warning because I have been, I've been flying on airplanes for most of my life, okay? I have never had this happen to me. Airplane sex case. Okay, PG-13 warning. All right, giving you your chance. Airplane sex case lands in FBI's lap. Detroit, a couple of strangers who were caught in a sex act while in their seats aboard a Delta flight. I'm flying Delta in February. Hmm. A pair of strangers who were caught in a sex act while in their seats aboard a Delta flight likely won't face criminal charges, could could get fined $800 each. A 48-year-old woman on her way to Nashville via Detroit was performing a sex act on a 28-year-old man on his way to Miami via Detroit, leading to complaints by nearby passengers. Uh, Apparently, um, what what happened is that um, that this, this couple... Who had not met before the flight? Belinda Babinick, close your mouth. <laughs> I can't. You haven't heard this. They, they, they had not met before the flight. So this is a 48-year-old woman. It is a 28-year-old guy. They are apparently they've never met before. They are sitting next to each other in seats on this particular Delta flight, and en route, they decide that that's what they're going to do. Um. Let's see. And then, of course, other passengers, you know, 
you know, point this out and you know raise issues. The pair was taken into custody Sunday at the Detroit Metro Airport terminal when the plane landed. Um, airport police, who had been alerted by the Delta crew, can you imagine? You they call? Hey, guess what we got going on on this flight? Um, we're eager. We're waiting and transported the pair to the airport safety building. Then the FBI took over. The FBI issued citations, so they're handling the case. Um, apparently, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office has to make the decision. I guess that what they're saying is that this technically probably isn't a federal offense, but it is something that you can get cited on. But see, this is this is the larger point here. Where do these people come from? I, I mean, where do these people come? When I first saw thought, when I first saw this story, I thought it was going to turn out to be a couple of young lovers who just get inspired by. The moment, which would still make it odd, right, and inappropriate and all that stuff. These are complete strangers on an airplane. How does the conversation even start? I mean, that, that's that, how do you even get from, hi, I am Jeff, to, you know, where they ended up getting? I, I, just, I guess there was no arguing over the armrest. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um... I, I, okay, okay, see, now these are all the questions. Okay, uh, Groove Wade's in. How long was the flight? Well, I, I, know, I know. Um, let's see. She was on her way to Nashville via Detroit, and he was on his way to Miami via Detroit. Um, uh, I, I, I see. Now these are these are all these. The, see, these are the these are the questions. There we go. Where, where did the flight originate from? How what long? How long? Did, I don't know how long it took. I mean, I long I, enough. I, I, well. You would think, I, I guess, but um, I'm just trying to picture, again, being the pilot, being the flight attendant. Being the, now, I've complained about the kid kicking my seat, you know, behind me. You know, I, I've complained about, like, the, the baby crying. I've complained about the, you know, the, the loud music. I'm, I, I've been flying all my life, and number one, I've never sat next to that woman. <laughs> and number two, I've never been around. I'm sure maybe that stuff goes on more than we think. Airplane sex case lands in FBI's lap. No pun intended. Couple likely to avoid charges. It's 136, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. It's an early season battle between two top teams in the division. Tomorrow evening, as the Bucks head to Detroit, Ted Davis is live from the brand new Little Caesars Arena with our Buckshots pregame coverage. 540 here on WTMJ. Earlier today, Steve Scafidi, um, who now occupies the 830 noon slot, letting me go back to the slot that I like, this noon to three spot. Um, he, had, he had Tom Barrett on, which is which is fine. And I, I, I didn't have a chance to listen to the whole interview. I was driving around doing things. But I did hear at one point in time, Steve asked Barrett, so do you consider Milwaukee to be safe? To which Barrett said, yes, M- Milwaukee is a safe city. We have challenges. And then he went on to talk about how, well, now we're doing the surge policing, which is all very well and good, and I support it. You just wonder, where, where has this been for the last 10 years? I mean, I mean, seriously, it's like Ed Flynn woke up one day and said, hey, my chase policy isn't working. Crime is out of control. Maybe I should let the cops start being cops again. But anyhow, Barrett says, yes, th- this is a safe city. Ah, here's the Journal Sentinel's latest report. 15-year-old boy dead. 
three men wounded in separate Milwaukee shootings. Four separate shootings, three of them Wednesday, left a 15-year-old boy dead and three men wounded, according to Milwaukee police. Um, DeAndre Taylor, 15, died at a hospital where he was dropped off shortly before 8.30 a.m. Wednesday after being shot in the 2900 block of North 5th Street, according to police who are investigating his death as a homicide. Yes, if you're shot on the street and you're dead, yes, that would be a homicide. The first shooting was reported shortly before midnight Tuesday when a 25-year-old man was shot by someone in a passing vehicle near North 10th Street in West Keith. His wounds are not life-threatening. A 35-year-old man suffered a non-life-threatening wound shortly before 1.30 a.m. when he was shot in the 1400 block of West Euclid Avenue. And a 20-year-old man was seriously wounded when he was shot shortly after 2 p.m. Wednesday, broad daylight in the 2400 block of North Hopkins Street. The three wounded men were hospitalized, according to police, who were seeking suspects in all four shootings. But Tom Barrett, yes, Milwaukee is a safe city. You know, we have challenges. Yes, the challenges are the criminals are running out of control. The challenges are people can't stop at gas stations and fill up their cars without fear of being carjacked. I would love to see a little more outrage from the mayor. It, it just you, You'd love to see him Focus some of his attention on calling out idiotic decisions made by the DA's office or judges that turn loose people on a regular basis when they should be behind bars. You know, that's where I'd like to see some of the outrage directed. I will not hold my breath on it. Okay, anybody who has used social media, whether it's Facebook or or Twitter or emails, for example, knows that it's a great way to communicate with people at the same time there are there are trolls that are out there that decide that they're, they're the they're people that just get their kicks out of trying to you know write hostile or, or nasty or threatening or provocative or argumentative comments about things that other people do one of the things that you can do to deal with the people that do that is that you can you can you can block them. You know, for example, I mean, I have a Twitter account. You can follow me at Jeff Wagner 620. And I, I think I probably only have two or three people blocked. But I, I have blocked a couple people because what I found was that there were a couple people who were trying to hijack my Twitter account, you know, and, you know, nasty comments and all those sort of things. And that that's not what it's that's not what it's there for. It's my Twitter account, and it's my way of communicating with, you know, people who follow the program or things like that, and I'm all up for discussion, but I'm not going to allow my Twitter account to be hijacked by, uh, again, some of these nasty trolls that are out there who have their own sort of agendas. Well, all right, there's three Republican lawmakers who have their own Twitter accounts, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, uh, John Nigren of Marinette, he's one of the real good ones, and uh, State Representative Jesse Kramer of Kewaskum, and they, they have their Twitter accounts. And what they found is there's this liberal advocacy group, one Wisconsin now, you know, we've talked about them before. Actually, they were the group in the first hour of the program. We talked to Sauk County Judge Michael Skrnock, who is the conservative candidate for the state Supreme Court, and, and they're the ones that were doing opposition research and said, oh, this guy was arrested for a protest at an abortion clinic in 1989. This means he can't be a fair Supreme Court justice, blah de blah blah de blah But one Wisconsin now is one of these sort of collective lefty trolls. And what they were doing is they were essentially hijacking 
the Twitter accounts of these elected officials, and they were posting all sorts of comments. They're not the constituents of these guys. They were just posting all sorts of comments. And so what happened is the lawmakers simply blocked them. Um, they, they they blocked them. And they said, uh, yeah, we're what we considered was all these this constant, you know, the, these these people that didn't like us and were trying to advance their agenda. You know, we considered um, it to be spam. They said these comments were sometimes, you know, disrespectful in many respects. And, you know, we just weren't going to allow them to use our Twitter accounts as a way of trying to, again, advance their particular agenda. They can have their own Twitter account if they want. So they blocked them. And it's something that sometimes you you have to do when you're dealing, uh, again, with the the trolls that are out there. Well, one Wisconsin now has now filed a lawsuit. They say, you're violating our First Amendment rights by blocking us from your Twitter account. Hmm. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The legislature say, hey, look, first of all, you know, we're not blocking our constituents, which are intended our intended audience. Um, you know, one of the representatives says, hey, it's not for the Dane County liberals to carry on conversations with me. You know, my Twitter account is for my constituents. All right. Four, one, four, seven, nine, nine, one, six, twenty. You've got three Republican lawmakers who said, look, we're not going to allow our social media accounts that we use to talk about things that we are doing and we use to communicate with people, we're not going to allow them to be hijacked. And, and yes, yes, we have blocked some of these groups, and we will continue to block them in the future. I don't have a problem with this at all. 414-799-1620. Do you? We discuss next. It's 143. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 145, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So I, I have a Twitter account, and, and I use it to communicate with people who are on Twitter, who listen to the program or follow me or whatever. And I every day I put out in advance what the three big things are going to be, also some links to some other stories. And sometimes people you know, people respond, and there's a little bit of a dialogue. But I am not going to allow my Twitter account to be hijacked by trolls who have their own sort of agenda. So if I think that you're one of these trolls you're, you're going to be blocked that, that's it you know you don't like it you know too bad you're not going to be able to use my twitter account um for your own personal purposes so you've got three republican legislators who have twitter accounts they use them to communicate with their constituents and they've been they say essentially being spammed by this liberal group that has more time and money than they have uh, constructive ideas who are just you know using the twitter accounts and they're hijacking by posting comments so the legislators have just blocked them and now Talk about, you know, frivolous lawsuits. They're running to court saying, well, we don't think you should be able to block us. Well, of course they should be able to block you. You don't have a constitutional right to do that. Now, it's not like they're trying to tell this liberal group that you can't have your own Twitter account and you can post whatever you want on that as long as it's cool with Twitter. We're just not going to let you hijack ours. Mary in northwest Milwaukee. Mary, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I, I kind of liken this to... Um, the phone book. Let's say we all have our phone numbers in the in the white pages or and that sort of thing. And now you have some goofball that wants to call and do prank phone calls. So that means that when I get the prank phone call, I have to allow this prank phone call to go on, and I can't hang up on that person or take my phone off the hook. 
so the person can't call anymore. Right. Or, or let's let's not let's not even use the prank phone call example. Let's talk about telemarketers. Okay. You exactly. know, you're, right. So so let's even let's even assume that they're that the telemarketers have a, a quote unquote legitimate thing that they're they're trying to do. Um, but you get sick of it. Oh no, I don't want I don't want to buy that timeshare. Stop calling me. No, I I don't want this or that or the other. You're right. Does that mean that you shouldn't be able to hang up on them or you shouldn't be able to block those solicitations? Of course you should be able to. And I do all the time. I hang right up on them. Right, right, exactly. No, no, thanks for the call. No, th- to me, I mean, look, I, I, you're talking to somebody who makes his living under the umbrella of the First Amendment. And, I, of course, the, the First Amendment is government shall, shall not do stuff to restrict your right to, to free speech. Well, that's, that's not an absolute type of, of thing. I don't think that there's any – well, you know, who knows? I mean, you file a lawsuit in Dane County, and you, all, all you need is one of those eight Dane County judges who have a peculiar sort of view to say, well, yes, you, you, you can't do this. You can't block the general public. You're an elected official. You have to let people post whatever they, they want. No, I don't think it's that way at all. If you were trying to limit the ability of One Wisconsin Now to post stuff on their own Twitter account, that would be a different story. But in this particular case, uh, no, it's it's not – it's not that way at all. That's their accounts. There's not ta- there's not taxpayer money that's involved in this. I don't think it's really any different than saying, you know what, um, we're going to have we're going to have an event, um, but you know it's not going to be necessarily open to the public. We're going to go. I'm going to do an appearance. This would be an elected official. I'm going to do appear- an appearance at X particular place. I'm showing up at this foundry, but it's not open to the public. I'm going to be meeting with the various employees or whatever. You have a right to do that. So, you know, this is another one of those things where, again, you've got some of these groups that are out there that have more time and money, like I say, than they have common sense. And now, of course, you tie up the court system with it. An update on a story that we have been talking about for quite a while, and that is what is going on in the state juvenile prison system. There is now only one prison to send male juvenile delinquents to, um, and that is up at Lincoln Hills, which is kind of the north-central part of, of the state. As I have said before, in order to get sent to Lincoln Hills, you have to be part of the worst of the worst. Juvenile judges bend over backwards and then do three backflips to avoid sending these criminals to any sort of detention facility. It is the last resort, which is why you have so many of these cases where you have the kids that have been involved in progressively more violent offenses, starting off with car theft and then burglary and then carjacking and all these things. It's why they're back out on the street over and over again, because you have judges that don't want to send them away. So the people that end up, the 150 or so and I'm saying kids in quotation marks, they're, they're really criminals who are well on their way to becoming career criminals. But the 150 so or so kids that are up at Lincoln Hills, they're boys, are dangerous. They, they, they are, they're dangerous to each other. They're dangerous to the guards. You had this lawsuit filed by the ACLU, which said, oh, this is terrible. The guards are, are using handcuffs, and they're using pepper spray, and they're putting some of these kids in solitary. Then you had a very liberal Madison federal judge who probably had no experience, any meaningful experience at all, in dealing with j- dangerous juvenile offenders, who said, yes, this, this is appalling. So they issued all these restrictions. Well, what's happening? 
happened as a result of that is now literally you have the inmates trying to run the prison, to use a phrase that was made popular by an NFL owner last week. Uh, because and, and there, So what's happening is you have you know inmates that now feel emboldened to attack guards, to attack teachers, um, to disobey guards, to do essentially whatever they want because they think this liberal federal judge in Madison has their back. So here's I mean, the, the latest story that's coming out of this. Um, a teen inmate this summer stole a can of pepper spray and blasted a guard in the face with it, sickening him and other workers in the area, according to uh, newly released records. The incident is the latest to illuminate the troubles that have gripped uh, Lincoln Hills. Um, the prison complex is a little bit north of Wausau. On July 22nd, three inmates scaled a fence in an enclosed exercise yard, ran across the prison grounds, according to incident reports. Guards apprehended two of them. The third inmate took a large can of pepper spray from an unattended van, confronted a guard, sprayed him twice in the face. The guard then used his own pepper spray on the inmate as well. After the inmate emptied the can of pepper sprayed in the guard's face, he used it to smash out the back window of the van. Soon afterwards, a supervisor hit the inmate with pepper spray and took him to the ground, according to the reports, etc., etc. But this, I mean, I bring this up because it is an indication of the type of criminal element that the people at Lincoln Hills are having to deal with. And unfortunately, this is a situation where, in my opinion, you have a clueless judiciary who doesn't recognize, that doesn't recognize and appreciate the type of people that are incarcerated at Lincoln Hills. This is not the Leave it to Beaver days where, you know, Wally and Eddie and Lumpy go out and throw toilet paper over the principal's house. That's not what this is. You are talking about dangerous, dangerous individuals who have now decided that they feel emboldened because they believe that the court system and the ACLU is has their back. To me, and I've argued this before, the answer is not closing Lincoln Hills. The answer is building more juvenile correctional facilities to deal with the influx of dangerous juvenile criminals that are out on the streets. Now, I don't have a problem with trying to figure out, is there stuff we can do to stop the the 12-year-old offender from becoming a 16-year-old career criminal? And, And I leave that to smarter people than me to figure that out. All I know is when you have dangerous people, as exhibited by repeated criminal activities or violent criminal activities, the rest of us need to be protected. if If you're a 60-year-old lady and you're filling your car up with gasoline on 28th and Capitol, you don't care whether the guy that sticks a gun in your face hits you, takes your purse, and steals your car, you don't care whether he's 16 year old, or 16 years old or whether he's 28 years old. You just care that somebody stuck a gun in your face, hit you, took your car, and stole your purse. I mean, that's what you care about. And this idea that, well, because they're 16, we need to just kind of wring our hands and we need to be, oh, just so concerned. Nuts to that. Let's start protecting people on the streets. Is that too much to ask for? And if that means building more juvenile facilities and giving the guards that are there responsible for keeping wraps on these juvenile criminals, is that really something that's wrong? Because right now at Lincoln Hills, thanks to a federal court ruling in the ACLU, at least in my opinion, it is open season on the prison guards, and that is unacceptable. It's 155. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The bye week came and went for the Packers, and now is the time to shine for Brett Hundley. 
What will Mike McCarthy's game plan need to be for a Monday night victory? Greg Matzik and Jeff Falconio dive in tonight during Miller Lite Packers Playbook. Starting at 6 o'clock, they are live from Carly's Bar and Grill in Pewaukee. Go check them out. Coming up in just a couple minutes, what if they had a Winter Olympics and nobody came? And this weekend... Goodbye, daylight saving time. Yes, yes, I know it's a singular. It's not daylight savings. Daylight saving. It is very, very controversial. We're going to be talking about that Uh, right before we go to Belinda's News. I I did want to offer some thoughts on the the dominant story yesterday, which was, of course, the the wrong way driver got on the freeway. And as I I said this, I'm not being flip at all about it, uh, of, of ways to die. I cannot imagine anything more horrendous than driving full speed into a, a truck going the wrong, as you're going the wrong way on, on the freeway. And, of course, at the end of the program yesterday, we took the news conference from the acting sheriff who was talking about how the injuries were so catastrophic, they couldn't tell what type of vehicle it was. They couldn't tell. Um, they, they weren't able to, and to my knowledge, they still haven't been able to identify the body because the, the injuries were, were just, I mean, there was the massive impact, and then the car caught on fire. I mean, just, just horrible. Now a lot of people are saying, okay, well, what can we do to stop the wrong way driving? And, I mean, obviously, some of it has to do with you, you have drunks that are getting on the, the freeway in, in the wrong way. In this particular situation, we don't know, and I'm not sure we're ever going to exactly know the, the motivation. I think sometimes th- these are people who've just decided to end their lives, or they're people who've made mistakes, um, who've, made, who've gotten drunk and gone the wrong way. The, the truth of the matter is th- there's not a lot I think we can do. I mean, you can use technology a little bit to have some of the flashing, illuminating lights. But at the same time, um, actually around here, I think the freeways, especially as they've been rebuilt, are, are pretty well designed. I don't know that there's much more that you can do aside from be aware that there's some crazy people out there. It's 159. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 208, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So, Gru, who's producing the show today and always. Are you a fan of the Olympics? I did, There was a shrug. Eh? You, you will watch them when they're happening. Do you have any desire to travel halfway around the world to see the Olympics? No. So that wouldn't be something on your list. Well, um, you, you're not alone. Um, you, you, the, the, we're going to lead off this. This is a segment called, What if they had an Olympic Games and, and no one came? Um the, the for all the the competition that goes around with trying to secure Olympics, once you you win, what happens is you then have the obligation to number one make sure you have the facilities that can deal with the Olympics, and number two figure out what you're going to do to attract people that will come. Now the um, the Winter Games are are coming up this February, and they are going to be in South. Korea. Uh, matter of fact, there's now just under a hundred days to go before the next Olympics, and and you you're probably seeing NBC has them, and you're you're seeing the ads for it. And the the Olympics are are always something that are watched on TV, right? So I mean that that's kind of the idea. If the if the games do big numbers on TV, advertisers are happy, NBC is happy, organizers appear to be happy, but. There is a second story going on. Like I said, the Olympics are coming up. They're going to be in South Korea. And ticket sales are dismal. They are, they are just absolutely dismal. Um, big story in the New York Times yesterday. As of October 24th, only about 57% 
of the tickets for the games in South Korea that had been reserved for international fans had been sold. Okay, so for the, the ones that are set aside for people who want to travel, um, they, they, they only 57%. So, you know, almost half were still available. For the tickets that they had set aside for for local people, the tickets that were allocated, allocated to South Koreans, um, about 80% were available. 80%. Now, in other years, um, you, you've had ticket sales which have been lagging. Um, the Winter Games in, in Turin, Italy in 2006, another example. Um, the Rio Olympics, another example. You know, story after story of that. And typically what the organizers say is, well, um, you know, don't, don't worry, you know, it's slow. But for these Winter Olympics, uh, they've got about one million tickets, and they've only sold 341,000 of them. So what a lot of the organizers are looking at now is this prospect that you're going to have th- these Olympic athletes that are essentially going to be competing in well, empty or almost empty venues. Um, and while other other places have struggled to, to sell tickets, um, the situation in South Korea, like they say, is is particularly grim. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, here's what I want to discuss. Um, the Olympics are in South Korea. And I, I think given everything that is going on in the world, I, I, I'm not going to say putting the Winter Olympics in South Korea is the worst location in the world, but given everything that is going on in the world, it's probably one of the five worst locations that you could, could find as far as people wanting to travel, given everything that's going on in the world. Also, I think given everything that's going on in the world in general, people are reluctant to travel. Now, that explains why ticket sales to international travelers might be down. I'm not sure how you could explain how 80% of the tickets that are available to South Koreans aren't sold. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What is going on here? And, and is this going to turn around? The Olympic organizers are saying, well, you know, people are slow to buy tickets. As we get closer, there's going to be this huge surge. I, I have to tell you, I don't buy that because if you are planning, for example, you know, if if you've got about 50 percent, slightly less than that, of the tickets that you're selling to international travelers that are available, well, you've got to make arrangements in advance. I, I mean, I don't know too many people that on the spur of the moment – um, two or three months' notice are going to say, hey, I'm going to make arrangements to go to South Korea to see the Olympics. 414-799-1620. All right, is this going to be a problem? Is this going to be one of the least attended winter games or Olympic games ever? Or is this just, well, people are slow to buy tickets? 414-799-1620. And if it is going to be one of the least attended games, what's going on? Are we losing interest in the Olympics in general? Do we not want to travel? What's happening? We discuss next. I've got my theories. We'll talk about it. It's 214. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 216. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, the Winter Olympics, which are in South Korea this year, start in less than 100 days. Slow ticket sales for Olympic Games are not necessarily unusual, but in this particular case, they are particularly slow and in some cases some people are suggesting that it is time to panic 
80% of the tickets available for South Koreans to see the games are unsold, and about 45% of the international tickets are unsold. They've only sold about 371,000 of a million available tickets. Now, some of the organizers are saying, well, that, that, you know, as we get closer, people will buy. Well, I, I'm not sure I see that because if you're, if you're traveling halfway around the world from the United States, are you really, haven't you made your arrangements already? Is somebody now suddenly going to say on a week, over the weekend, hey, let's fly to South Korea for the games? I mean, I, I think that this has the potential, for a variety of reasons, to be one of the least attended Olympic Games ever, including the fact that perhaps primarily it's in South Korea. Who wants to go to South Korea at this point in time? 414-799-1620. Christine in Kenosha. Christine, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Hi. What do you think? Well, I think it's for exactly the reasons you've indicated. Number one, it's in South Korea, which is probably most, not one of the more desirable locations to go, um, particularly with proximity to North Korea. I think the security concerns with all of the terrorist attacks we've been having definitely play yeah. into that. Um, for me, I would also indicate that, you know, with 80% of their domestic tickets not being sold, the Olympics are an incredibly expensive venture. I yeah. went in 1996 to Atlanta, and the only reason I was able to afford it was because I had a free place to stay, and it took a tank of gas to get there. Yeah. So, I, you know, you're looking at a population that may not have as much expendable income, and then on top of it, you're looking at a very, very expensive venture because it's not just the tickets. It's like everything is incredibly expensive associated with the Olympics. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Christine. My, my late wife was a um, huge fan of she, – she loved Olympic events, and she's a huge fan of figure skating and women's gymnastics. When they had – when the, uh, the Winter Olympics were in Utah, Salt Lake City, um, she ended up going. And you talk about the cost. It was – and this is true – it was the events she were going was going to were over like the first and the second weekend. It was cheaper for her to fly out, you know, see games for two or three days, fly back, and then go back a few days later than it was to stay out there because of, of just how crazy expensive things were. And I, and I was saying, well, it doesn't make any sense to do that. But then when you looked at the money, it did because, I mean, hotel rooms were crazy. It was just, it was nuts. And it is a very expensive venture to go to. It absolutely is. I mean, I would even just reckon back to, you know, we were in Atlanta. It was where Coca-Cola was, and now it seems laughable, but we were, you know, astonished that a Coca-Cola costs $4.75 at the Olympics. Well, that's 21 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> now I can only imagine what it would be, but, you know, it's just everything associated with it is just incredibly expensive, and I think security is number one. The, the concern for international folks, but locally it, it probably has to do with money, too, and it, it's just it's a shame because they spend billions of dollars to get these uh, get these right. games in, and then you know a few weeks after the games are done, they're left with buildings that are unusable and, and become. Well, yeah, look look at Greece. I mean, I mean that's yeah. a classic example, right? Now, thanks for calling, and that's that's why it is always a mixed blessing when you see these these cities or these countries that are competing for the right to have Olympics. And I'm not anti-Olympics, but, you know, you always wonder financially, given what they have to put in, the investment that they have to put in, building the infrastructure, you know, is it going to pay off? Now, look, I, I'm a fan of the Olympics, and I, it's one of those, it's one of the only times that I care about Olympic curl, curling or something like that or speed skating or whatever. But, I mean, I'll be watching it, and I'll be rooting for the United States. And I, I think the truth 
truth is, too, in many from the perspective of Olympic organizers, it's all about the TV ratings, and that's going to depend on are there going to be compelling stories. And I'm certainly not encouraging people not to watch. I'm just thinking it's going to be interesting to see what the actual attendance is going to be. And I, I don't know that you'll ever even know that from TV because, you know, the TV cameras, depending on how you position them, um, you, you can determine it. And for some of the marquee events, the figure skating and things like that, I mean, I have no doubt that those venues will be filled up. But I, I think it's the location as much as anything that is deterring um, international travelers. Tony in Milwaukee. Tony, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Afternoon, Jeff. Jeff, I wouldn't go for a simple reason with that nut job next door. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't know what he's going to do. He is so unstable, and this would be the perfect platform for him to uh, to try something. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, thanks for calling. I mean, I, I, you know, right, right. Who knows I, exactly? But you're always afraid of of targets of opportunity. Now, now, my guess is that you know you have. A lot of planning that, that has gone in, but in, into this type of stuff, but in, in an effort to prevent it. And my guess is, candidly, by the time the Olympic Games start, there, there's probably not going to be a safer place in the world than you know this location in South Korea, um, just because of all the security preparations that'll be there. But I, I got to admit, I think that's probably deterring at least some of the international travelers because they're saying, well, you know, we, we like the Olympic Games, but. Uh, you know, there's going to be Olympics in four years, and there's going to be Olympics in eight years, and, you know, who knows what the world is going to look like. But, you know, I don't know that South Korea is net, and this is no offense intended to South Korea, I don't know that it's necessarily, you know, one of the prime tourist spots anyways, and then you combine what's going on in the world with it. Let's talk to Marilyn in Mequon. Marilyn, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Hi. I just want to remind you, how awful they said that Russian games were going to be, and because nobody was going to attend, the security was going to be awful, the facilities weren't going to be finished, and you had a lot more of these naysayers in the United States, and it wasn't any place in Europe that they talked about it like this. And it was a very successful game. How do you explain, then, the the lagging ticket sales? Um, I don't know. I can't explain it, but we'll wait and see. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean... Would you agree with me, though, that the location this year is probably something that might be a deterrent to some people from traveling? Oh, absolutely. But I think that most places would be a deterrent right now with everything that's going on in this world. And the fact that the security, they said, was going to be lacking in Russia, and it was so tight, it was unbelievable. But people don't realize what's going on behind closed doors yeah and i, I think so i mean maybe we'll, we'll see I, all i can all i can tell you and that i think that's the reason for the new york times story and the reason i'm talking about it is you're you're less than a hundred days from the start of the winter olympics and this is not a knock on the winter olympics you're less than a hundred days and you have about 45 percent of the international tickets not sold uh that that strikes me as being a huge number. Again, because going, going to the Olympics doesn't strike me as being a an impulse type of purchase for most people. It, it's going to obviously be extremely expensive. It involves a commitment of time. And my guess is that a lot of people who you know want to go to the Olympics have already made their their arrangements to do it. 
Um, so I mean, I, I, maybe maybe there's a whole group of people that wake up on Sunday morning and say, "Helen, I, I, let's let's you know let, let's go to South Korea in a couple months." But I just don't think that's the way most people operate. I mean, the people that I know that went to the that have gone to the Olympics, they have planned well in advance. I mean, by well in advance, I mean a year or two in advance. As soon as the tickets go on sale, they get them, they make their arrangements because of all the pricing. Maybe this will be end up being different. I don't know how to explain 80% of the tickets available to South Koreans not being sold um, um, either, and maybe maybe that will change dramatically. And, and no doubt that what will happen at some point in time is if the ticket sales are so dismal, you'll drop prices or you'll start giving them away to try to paper, you know, fill up the arenas. Um, not to say this is not anti-Olympics, and Maryland might be right. Just Just wait. Maybe lots of people will be there. I think this is one of these situations, though, where, I mean, South Korea, Seriously, given what's going on in the world, not to knock South Korea, um, I think a lot of people are understandably reluctant to make that kind of dollar commitment to go to that part of the world where you have to deal with the neighboring country of North Korea. And who knows what's going on there? It's 226. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 236. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is one of the huge controversies. And... and I don't know that there's any right or wrong answer, although I happen to think that there is a a better answer. I love the summertime, and particularly I love that time around – I love June. I wish every month of the year could be June. For many reasons, it's it's getting warmer, but it's not getting hot. You know, it's – you're really – like summer summer is really starting. But the thing I like the most is it stays light – Forever, it seems. I mean, you know, it, you, daylight. What it, it, you know, as you get closer to the summer solstice, which is what June twenty first. You know, you, you can. It stays light around here till like nine o'clock at night. I mean, it, isn't that great? You can get off work and you have hours and hours to do stuff. Um, and of course, December twenty first is the winter solstice, which means that is the shortest amount of, of daylight uh, around. So, you know, given that's just what happens as we make a trip around the sun, we are always trying to figure out what's the best way to maximize daylight. Now, in I think it's what early March now, we go to daylight saving time, which is where you lose an hour of sleep. You spring ahead, um, you lose an hour of sleep, but we make an adjustment. Well, this weekend, Saturday night, we go off of daylight saving time, and again, it's a singular, I know, uh, daylight saving time. And the reason I mentioned that, Gru, who's producing the show, if, if you ever slip and say daylight savings, which is incorrect, you will immediately, you will get phone calls. Doesn't that idiot on the radio know that it's daylight saving in the singular? Yes, and I'll get emails. Yes, I, I, I know that. It's daylight saving time. But anyhow, what's going to happen tonight is, uh, is that we, we gain that out on Saturday night. We gain that hour of sleep back. Now, what this means as a practical matter is it's going to get light an hour earlier, and it's going to get dark an hour earlier. So for kids at the butt, I mean, now, what is it? gets light, it seems to me, what, around like 7.15 or so? I should have checked that, but it, it's kind of the idea. Well, okay, it's now going to get light earlier, but it's also going to be dark earlier. So for many people, if you leave work, you know, late afternoon or early evening, you know, your drive home is going to be in the dark. And that's always a controversy. Now, the history on daylight saving time is, is this. Um, actually, you know, Benjamin Franklin was the one who, who first 
pushed for this um, back in 1780 when he noticed that people burned candles at night but slept past dawn. The U.S. first implemented daylight saving during World War I as a way to conserve fuel. It was known as the Calder Act. In World War II, President Roosevelt implemented a year-round daylight saving time that was commonly known as wartime. And in 1966, President Johnson signed the Uniform Time Act into law. Under the act, states and territories can opt out of daylight saving. Um, Daylight saving, for example, isn't observed in Arizona. Um, Hawaii, um, or some of uh, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, a um, couple other places as well. Daylight savings observed in approximately 70 countries, including most of those in North America and Europe. Do we have some breaking news, Belinda? Yes, we do. From the WTMJ Pella.com Time Saver Traffic Center, I'm Belinda Babinick. 4145 southbound, just north of Good Hope Road. There is a car fire. If you're traveling in that area, please make a note of it. We're expecting this could cause backups anytime now. WTMJ News Time, 240. Okay, and we'll continue to keep you updated on that. All right, so that's the background of daylight saving time. We go off it on Saturday night. We go back to the standard time. Our number, 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I feel strongly uh, about this. I think that rather than the system we have now, I think we should stay on daylight saving time year round. I understand that for, you know, a handful of months, you get the argument that, well, you don't want the kids standing outside in the dark at the school bus. But the truth is they're going to be standing outside in the dark at the school bus. You know, in any ways, for at least a good portion of that. I would rather have that hour at the end of the day when people are driving home or maybe perhaps trying to do something after work. I support these efforts we've had. We stay on daylight saving time now longer than than we did. You know, it used to be we, we'd go we'd go to it uh, two weeks later and we'd go from it two weeks earlier. Um, I think daylight savings time daylight saving time is the way to go. And um, even though I'm going to enjoy getting an extra hour of sleep, um, and I, I guess I'm going to enjoy when I get up it being a little bit lighter, I would like to see us stay on daylight saving time year-round. 414-799-1620. And as a public service, this is the weekend that it happens. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 242. This is Jeff Wagner. 244, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Dave in Waukesha. Dave, hello. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Good. What do you think? I think uh, I think it should be, yeah, keep the daylight savings time all the way across the thing. Because the whole argument with kids having to stand darker than the school bus and all kind of junk like that, they get up so early now. I mean, school starts at 7.15. These guys are all, I mean, a lot of the kids are out there at 6, 6.15, 6.30 for the bus anyway. Number one. Right. And number two, it's dark by what? Four o'clock, you know, with, with right. when you move the clock. So I mean, it's you know dark either way, whatever way you go. And I think the other thing you should do, as long as you do that, is it should be universal. I mean, yes, not, nothing with this. You know, each state can opt out or opt in. Just you know what? Just make it one standard time. So we got you know time. You got Pacific, Mountain, Eastern, and, and Central. And yeah. that's it. Otherwise, it's like you, you want to know. You want to know something inter- interesting that's related to this. Massachusetts 
is considering trying to go to what they call Atlantic time, which is an hour earlier than Eastern Standard Time. So Massachusetts, and I, I, I don't know, I don't know where they do Atlantic time, but if they did that, there then would be five time zones in this country. Five? Could you imagine that? <laughs> well, no, actually not. I mean, I think, I think um, all right, some of the Caribbean islands they're they're in a different time zone, but uh, right direction it goes but nonetheless this whole you know and then you know you have to come up with a new come up with a new marker to be able to change the batteries in your smoke detectors i mean that's the, that's the big argument you always hear right well yeah right i mean thanks i mean again i look and i i guess part of where i come from on this entire situation is that i i love the idea that i i am willing to trade off having it dark in the morning for or darker in the morning for all the the extra light that you get in the summer but at the same time i just think this is a practical matter i would rather have it darker in the morning and have a little bit more light late in the afternoon i mean the idea you want to talk about depressing i mean it's it's this idea especially for people who have to get up really early and work long days the idea that you're getting up and it's dark and then you're at work all day and then you get out and it's dark at night i mean that is about to me as depressing as it as it as it gets uh let's see on our text line justin says for uh let's see your plan is exactly what the folks have in lower michigan at the uh far Wisconsin part of their time zone, um, that would cause our sunrises after 8 a.m. from November to February, but that's still better than places like Fairbanks, Alaska, where the sun in those months is up from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you know, again, just like the tax plan that the government has come out with, you know, there's going to sort of be winners and losers, and I understand that it's a matter of individual preference and taste. I think more and more we have been moving to going to daylight saving time year-round. I mean, you saw that when we decided to do it two weeks earlier and then go away with it two weeks later. I guess this idea that we're, for a couple months or a handful of months, we've got to flip back and do the other thing, to me, just doesn't make it worth the effort. And candidly, candidly, put me in the category of somebody who would just like to see this go year-round. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, couple thoughts on a new study out in Madison and and a trend, a trend that is very, very scary for those of us who love to read. Stick around. It's 248.